But I'll start over again. We're talking about authority today. Right now we just got to sing about the uncreated one, the king. And how we can have great confidence in him. Pastor Kenny prayed that we can have confidence in him no matter what because he is the king. He is the one with authority. And so today through the preaching of Mark chapter 1, 21 to 28, we have some concrete evidence and concrete reasons why we can have complete confidence in Jesus Christ who has complete authority. This is different because many kings or presidents or prime ministers have authority, but their authority is limited. Limited to a specific region, limited to a specific group of people, even limited to a certain era or time or term. Authority. We understand how critical that is, even in the earthly world that we live in, but Christ is the ultimate authority of all. I mean, to say Jesus is Lord is the common confession of every Christian. If you want to sum up what it means to be a Christian, you say Jesus is Lord and you mean it. That's really what it comes down to. And Jesus is the king. That was the message that he preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the king is here and that's Jesus. And so today we're going to see how much authority and power he has. Where his kingdom is not just on earth, but expands to the spiritual realm. We're going to see that today. So we'll be at Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. I hope you have your Bibles. And if you do, please read along with me. And let's rise as we read God's word together. Perhaps you have your phones. Mark 21, Mark 1, 21 to 28. Jesus begins his teaching ministry here. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Verse 27. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Verse 28. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to focus on the authority of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him more clearly so that we would know him more and gain greater confidence in the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. First portion of this scene here, Jesus, number one, Jesus teaches with authority. They, it says in verse 21, who's they? That's Jesus and the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who he just called to follow him right before this. And they go to Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee. So those of us who've been to Israel undoubtedly have stopped by Capernaum. It's called the City of Jesus, and uh, this was Peter's hometown. Matter of fact, supposedly Peter's uh, house, the foundation, at least sits there. I think, I believe it's to the right when we walk in. And then there's a huge 
synagogue to the left. So Peter lived pretty close to the synagogue. And this becomes Jesus' home base. He grew up in Nazareth as a boy, but then in Capernaum becomes his home base as he uh, operates out of, around Galilee. This was a thriving city. Fishermen, of course, tradesmen, merchants, farmers. This was a thriving city where roads would intersect. So a lot of people will come through Capernaum. Very strategic for Jesus to make his home base out of there. But it says it was a Sabbath day. What does a Sabbath day mean? This was the holy day for the Jews. This is a day dedicated to focus on God and to worship God. And so what would Jewish people do? Well, they would go to the synagogue on on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. This would be a Saturday. And how this works is from Friday night to Saturday night is considered the Sabbath. And they would focus in on hearing from God. And what would happen on, at a typical Sabbath in the synagogue? Well, you would have prayers, similar to what we have here. You have a benediction or a blessing given to the people from the leaders. And they will read out of the Torah or the, or the prophets. That's the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. And then someone would try their best to explain what was read. So we, right, just like right now, we read Mark 1, 21 through 28. And now my role is to exposit or explain what was read. But on this particular day, they would have a special teacher. Because what the elders of the city, city would do of Capernaum, invite uh, learned men to try to explain and exposit the text for the people. But today, they would ask Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, the Nazarene to come and teach. They're in for a special treat. Therefore, verse 21 says, he began to teach. This is exactly why Jesus came next to atoning for the sins of man. Jesus spent more time teaching and preaching. And this is why he came. Even in the first 22 verses, this is the third time teaching or preaching is is emphasized. In verse 22, read along with me. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. They were blown away, in other words. They were rocked to the core. They were knocked off their feet because Jesus' preaching was confronting the inner man. There was some kind of authority, it says right here. For he was teaching them as one having authority. Exousia, power, authority. This is a different type of teacher now. This is not the typical Saturday when the Jews would show up in the synagogue. Exousia or authority means power, might, command. And Jesus was teaching with complete authority. And not as the scribes, this is right here, not as the scribes. What would the scribes be like? These were the learned men that the elders would have to teach. And the scribes undoubtedly would have studied the Torah. And they would attempt to explain what was read. The issue with with scribes were this. At Mark 7, they emphasized the traditions of man over the commandments of God. They emphasized what man said more than what the Bible said or what the Old Testament said. And then, in other words, their goal was to simply to parrot, repeat what other commentators or rabbis have taught on this. And really, they will give possible interpretations. What we read today, Rabbi so-and-so from this region says this is what this means. And by the way, Rabbi so-and-so from this era says this is what this means. And perhaps give a third and fourth interpretation from these rabbis. And really, the rabbis would be giving commentaries of commentaries. And they would get further and further away from the primary source, which is God's word. 
And they would, in other words, just give information. Let me just share information about what was read, and particularly share information about opinions of what man would have over these things. And they would, get, they would not give authoritative judgments. They would just kind of give, hey, random thoughts here given from men. And so they got away from the primary source. This is what you could expect sitting in the synagogue in Capernaum 2,000 years ago. But Jesus was teaching with authority. What does that look like? Well, first of all, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is the greatest preacher ever. The Puritans have said that God has only one son, and he made him a preacher. Okay, Jesus was truly a preacher. He is the author of the truth. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the author of truth. Jesus authored the Bible, along with the Spirit and the Father. And obviously, he has total command of what the Bible says. Absolute command. And now he's teaching. This is what the scriptures mean. This is what it says. This is what I meant to say as the Spirit of God inspired these authors to write. Jesus is teaching with authority. Any authoritative preacher, even beyond Jesus, even to someone like me today, you know there's authority when the Word of God is the primary source Can you see that we constantly go back to the Bible? You see, church, I'm so grateful for this role. In a lot of ways, I think to myself and pray pray to the Lord, why do I get to do this? As I'm learning more of what it means to be a pastor, but I'm learning more and more. I don't have any special authority over Evergreen Church or anyone in this church. But where the authority lies is when we teach and preach the Bible and says, this is what God says. And really, as you're sitting here, the hope and efforts of everything that goes into preparing a sermon and, and praying is that you will leave knowing that you heard from God. You actually encounter God when you hear His Word preached. And, and, and the Bible is authoritative because it's completely true. Remember this, in, in anything in life, truth commands authority. We're, this is what we're talking about today, is it not? Authority. Truth commands authority. So I found this funny quote here read to us one time and a bunch of us pastors were there and we had our friend of our church, Pastor John MacArthur, preach here a couple of months ago in February. That was a great, encouraging time and I just talked to him this week and thanked him again. And uh, But this quote is a short quote by a man named Hugh uh, Hughes, Oliphat Old. Hughes Oliphat Old wrote of volumes on the history of preaching. Volumes and volumes and volumes, and towards the end of his volumes, he gets to modern-day preaching. And he has this little section about Pastor John MacArthur. I thought this was a funny yet helpful quote. So I'll read a little short excerpt here. Hugh writes, Why do so many people listen to MacArthur, comma, this product of all the wrong schools? How can you pack out a church on Sunday morning in an age which church attendance is seriously lagged? Question mark. Here's a preacher who has nothing in the way of winning personality, good looks, or charm. (laughs) Where is this going, right? Here's a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No No one would even suggest that he's a master of the art of oratory. Here it is now. What he seems to have is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God. And when he preaches, it is scripture that one hears. It's not the words of John MacArthur are so interesting as it, it is that the word of God is of surpassing.
passing interest. That is why one listens. You see, church, the the authority always comes in God's word. Jesus Christ was preaching the word. He was preaching himself, in other words. And so that's where Christians live. This is where we live. 2,000 years later, this is how we live. When, if you say Jesus is my Lord, he has authority over my life, what does that actually mean? It means that we're people of the book, the Bible. We study the Bible, and we live by the Bible, and we obey the Bible. We submit to the Bible. The Bible's our authority. This is how Jesus Christ mediates his rule, his authority over our lives, through the Bible. That's how it works. Does God's word rule you, church? As a genuine Christian, you would say yes. But just like myself, we're all in the process, amen? What areas of our lives do we kind of withhold? Like, yes, this area is truly God's, but maybe perhaps area of finance, marriage, sex life, thought life. You know what? That's, that's kind of for me. Do you allow the wisdom and philosophy of man to rule you, to inform your thoughts, to shape your attitudes? Does What is said and put out on social media, is that what informs your mind and your heart? I mean, these are all the things that were inundated with, things that in 2,000 years ago they didn't really have to deal with. We are inundated with media, with all kinds of information. Do we allow these things to shape our minds and our hearts and our desires and our attitudes? If so, these are things that we need to really address within our hearts. If Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's amen, he is Lord. But if he's Lord of you, the Bible is authority over our lives. Clearly. And this is wherever Jesus rules lives, you know the Bible is proclaimed. And the Bible's obeyed. That's when you know that lordship of Christ is obviously happening in lives, but in homes, church families, other things. God's word needs to be flowing. And as he's preaching, what happens? As we go through this narrative, immediate opposition. Turn with me to verse 23. Just then, or immediately, it's the word for immediately. So as, as Jesus is preaching and teaching, immediately... There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Just then, a demon-possessed man shows up. We need to explain, what is a demon, right? What is a demon? You know, I know we watch a lot of movies and television shows and read things, but what is a demon? A demon, in its simplest, most succinct way, is a fallen angel. A fallen angel. In Isaiah 14, you can write this down, Isaiah 14 It describes how Satan fell. Satan wanted to ascend and rival God and be God, in other words. He wanted to be higher than God, and he gets kicked out of heaven. And he was an angel, a beautiful angel, a majestic angel, a powerful angel. But he gets kicked out. And in Revelation 12, 4, it says that as he got the the dragon or the serpent got kicked out, he took a third of the angels with him. A third of the angels that were created by God become demons, and they get kicked out of heaven fallen angels. So demons are not unlimited in number or nor unlimited in power. They can't be everywhere at once like God. They're limited. But a third of the angels, I don't know how many angels there are, myriads and myriads, countless, but a third of them are satanic angels. And so what are we learning right here? Whenever the kingdom of darkness is threatened, 
you could always expect opposition. I mean, think about it, man. You want to live godly. You want to be. A, you want to lead your homes well, and there's opposition. Satan doesn't like that. You want moms. You want to teach your, your children to love Christ. So you're trying to emphasize praying for them, teaching them the scriptures. Satan doesn't want that. You want to live godly lives at the workplace. You want to live with integrity. You bet you're going to uh, face opposition. Students, you want to live for Christ, be faithful, not partake with everybody else and what they're doing and what they're talking about. You're going to experience some level of opposition. Expect it. If you're a threat to the kingdom of darkness, Satan will make sure that you feel some opposition. If you feel no opposition in your life, if there's zero opposition in your life, you might have to really evaluate yourself. To how much of a threat am I to the kingdom of darkness? Is God using me? What areas do I need to surrender to him in order to be useful in the master's hand? So in some ways, we don't like opposition. But in other ways, what an affirming thing. This is how it works. That's how it works in sports. If you're any good, they're going to double cover you. Okay, that's how it works, okay? If you're not a threat, we're not worried about you too much. We know how this works. But my question here is this. As I studied this and stared at this, these verses all week long, a question kept coming to my mind, and this is the question. What was a demon-possessed man doing in a Jewish synagogue? Because... They wouldn't allow a demon-possessed man, if they knew he was demon-possessed, to be sitting there week after week, Saturday after Saturday. If there was a demon-possessed man or woman in here, we would address this, okay? We will find a way to address this. Because in Mark chapter 5, there is a demoniac who, who is thrown into the tombs. Because he was crazy. He was naked and screaming. And Okay, we're going to put you in the tombs. You don't get to hang out with the rest of us. I believe this demon was undercover. I believe this demon was there week after week, day after day, hanging out with the Jewish people in the synagogue. And in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, it says that Satan disguises as an angel of light. Satan is not going to send his, 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 his mercenaries, his, his demons, making it so obvious. Satan uses deception. Satan is undercover. And most demons are undercover. Some obviously aren't. But this demon was living in the synagogue week after week with the Jews. And he was wreaking havoc. I mean, what does it mean to, that Satan comes as an angel of light? Light is the word truth. Truth. Light casts out the darkness. It's about truth. So how does Satan work? I mean, we understand this. He's the master deceiver. Satan, what he does is take some truth, twist interpretation, take some truth, twist the application to deceive people. This is how this works. Demons are behind every false religion. Every false religion on the planet has had a demon behind it, has demonic influence by it, behind it. I mean, the Jews are caught in false religions. They're caught in works righteousness and a pharisaical spirit in the temple. It was coming. A demon was involved in this. Perhaps Satan himself. Think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They profess a false Jesus. Who comes up with a false Jesus? Demons. Yes, Jesus is real, but he's an angel. The Mormons. A demon possessed Joseph Smith. To come up with another book that says that, yes, Jesus, some truth, 
Oh, he's a created son of God. He's not the create, uncreated one, as we just sung. He is the, a created son of God. Satanic counterfeit of Jesus Christ. Roman Catholicism, what? Are we talking about the Roman Catholicism too? Popes, demon-possessed. They, have, they corrupted the true gospel. The gospel plus these sacraments will save you. And maybe, maybe even after that, it won't even save you. Doctrines of demons. Pastor, how could you be calling these people out? Because it's true. It's true. Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard is a science fiction novelist. He was possessed by demons to come up with these lies that says you could be your own God, create your own universe. Are you kidding me? That sure sounds like what Baldwin just read. You'll become like God, just eat this. That's Satan all the way. Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy, possessed by demons. So there's no such thing as evil, devil, the devil, or no, there's no such thing as sin. What? Everybody, you're fine. Satan and his demons come as angels of light. In other words, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. A wolf is not just going to come in here and just start mauling people. They're going to do it behind the scenes, secretly, undercover. And this is what happens when Jesus Christ comes, the truth comes, and he starts preaching truth. This demon is exposed. He blew his cover. He took off his mask. Whoa. Is that you? Someone's been hanging out with this guy all this time. All of a sudden, what? You're demon-possessed? Let's look at verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, with an unclean, unclean spirit, and he cried out. This word cried out, he was terrified. This implies he was terrified at the presence of Christ. He was shrieking in horror. Terrified by hearing divine truth. Well, you know what truth does? Truth destroys lies, destroying everything that this demon was working on for years and years and years and years in Capernaum. Verse 24, and saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Question mark. Us, plural. Talk about the whole demonic race. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, what does the kingdom of light have to do with the kingdom of darkness? You're the king of kings, the king of heaven. We're demons of the king of darkness and Satan. What do we have to do with each other? Nothing is the answer. Nothing. Light has no fellowship with darkness. They say, have you come to destroy us? This demon is speaking for all his relatives. Us. Because they know every single demon, including Satan, knows what, what Matthew 23 says and Revelation 20 says, where Satan and his demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Destruction is coming. And they know. They're absolutely horrified with Christ because they recognize him. And they call him, you are the Holy One. They recognized him when they used to worship him in heaven. He, Jesus is their creator. They know this. This is a horrifying prospect for them, and they could do absolutely nothing about it. They know destruction is coming. And what does Jesus do? Well, second stage of this portion, Jesus rebukes with authority. Jesus demonstrates that his authority, his power, goes beyond the physical and earthly realm. 
proves it right here. Verse 25. He already did it in the wilderness with Satan, but that was kind of private. This is in front of everybody now. Verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, rebuked him. This is where now I see Jesus Christ roaring like the lion of Judah right now. And he rebuked and said, be quiet. Shut your mouth. That's enough. You don't get to speak anymore. And what does he tell him? Come out of him. I'm the king. You don't get to talk. I speak. You don't get to ask questions. I'm the one that gives the questions. Matthew 28, 18 says that all authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. All authority. Every single thing Jesus is, has authority over. All realms. He rules over the spiritual realm, the physical realm. Satan is God's devil. Every demon is is like a puppet in God's hand doing what he needs to get done to fulfill his plans, as Pastor Kenny preached. It's about Jesus' plans, not our plans, not Satan's plans, but God's plans. And even demons are under the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no rivalry here. This is not like some kind of struggle here. This is not a struggle. I just want to take a quick little time out here. I've just being... In the church, whether Evergreen or other churches and visiting other churches, I, I get the privilege of meeting a lot of great brothers and sisters. And, and my heart for the church has uh, been growing. The more I just stare at the Word week after week, I see how precious the church is to the Lord. I mean, how much He paid. We're going to take communion today. This is, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together to remember the sacrifice of Christ. But I believe we're deficient in certain theological areas. I really believe we're deficient, including our church, perhaps, some of us. I think we focus in a lot about the Lamb of God, which the mercy, the compassion, the love of God, the sacrifice, a humble servant that laid down his life. Amen and amen and amen, we should. However, the area that we don't, that needs to balance that is this. We need to understand more the theology of the Lion of Judah. It's a balance. It's two sides of the same coin. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. It's both. And I believe if we're preaching and emphasizing just a soft, partial version of Jesus, particularly for men, brothers, listen up. I believe we produce soft men. Soft man, passive and absent in leading. Speaking the truth in love. Right, there's a balance. Truth, love. Being tough and tender. Being courageous and compassionate. It's both. It's not just one. Gentlemen, if you want to lead well, particularly at a time like this, you need to stare into the eyes of the Lion of Judah more. We need to do this more. We need to understand this power. Do we understand what's happening here? This is not some kind of a passive moment where like, all right, I'm casting out a demon. This is an incredible conflict in a dominant, uh, dominant scene by Jesus Christ. He's speaking against the, the whole demonic realm right here. Well, it's just his words. He, he commands them. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, roars right here. He's basically saying, I am the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
He's basically saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It ends, it starts and ends with me. Jesus saying, it all, I am the warrior king who's coming to destroy everything that's evil, everyone who's against me someday. Brothers, do we see this? Do we realize who we're dealing with? Do we realize this? The great I am, as we sang this morning, this is more than worse. So when we sing these songs, imagine more what this means through the scriptures. We need to be informed and to be able to see Christ for who he is in the scriptures. And as you think about this church, what a comfort it is. If you're, if you're worried and concerned about Satan and demons and uh, superstitions, you don't have to be. <laughs> Jesus is saying that he's in control. He is in control. He has all authority. We don't have to worry about any demons. We don't have to worry about Satan. We shouldn't be talking about Satan in our conversation. We don't have to worry about him. Focus on Christ. In, our, in, our, uh, in 2018, in our Israel trip, going to Capernaum was one of the highlights. And, and going to the synagogue, which the foundation supposedly still exists from the first century, this black uh, basalt stone represents first century uh, stone that perhaps Jesus even walked on. But north of Capernaum is Chorazin. Chorazin has a synagogue there too. I found something very interesting. I, I think I shared this with the church before, but I think it's worth mentioning. In Chorazin, there was a carving in the stone of a pillar with a, in, with a picture of Medusa. Who's Medusa? Medusa is basically a monster from Greek mythology. And as we traveled to other cities in northern Israel, we would go to synagogues with these Greek zodiacs. Half horse, half man. I mean, what, was the, what were these images doing in the synagogue? It would be as if we had like a picture of Buddha or something hanging out in our lobby. What is that all about? Think about that. Right? This is a bizarre thing. I was just dumbfounded. Well, evidently, the Jews allowed worldly ideologies to seep into even the synagogue. Obviously, they allowed worldly wisdom, worldly things to seep in to the synagogue, corrupting the truth, dishonoring God as they knew him by having these images. Nothing about these things would please God. Nothing. There's no reason to have these things. How does Satan work today? I think that's a good picture of what happened 2,000 or however many hundreds or thousands years ago on what's happening today. How does Satan work? Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, believers cannot be demon-possessed. First John 4, 4 says, He who is in me is greater than he is in the world. He's conquered the world. If you're a genuine Christian, you don't have to ever worry about demon possession or being possessed by a demon. That, that's crystal clear. However, demons can influence believers, though. This is where we really need to perk up and listen. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, John 8, 44, is, it says the devil or Satan has no truth in him. He speaks lies out of his own nature. It's, he's called the father of lies. Satan deals with lies. The demons are his children, and they deal with lies. 1 Timothy 4.1, I'm just going to quote this for us just because it's too clear and too good to 
pass up. First Timothy 4 1 says this, but the spirit, the spirit of God explicitly says that in later times, we're in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We're living in those later times, brothers and sisters. This is what Bible is saying about today. Since the time Christ came and ascended, we've been living in later times. The doctrines of demons. The doctrines of demons. Where are the Medusas in our church? Can we recognize any doctrines of demons at Evergreen Church or even just the church in general? Listen very carefully now. I'm gonna, I just picked out four. 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 Number one, humanistic theology. What does that mean? Man-centeredness. It's not God-centered, it's man-centered. Well, how do you know if you have a man-centered theology? You're sitting here, what has this got to do with me? How does Christianity benefit me? What can I get out of it? I come to service and say, what do I get out of it? That's man-centered. That's man-centered. Jesus is here to serve and fulfill me and my desires. That's man-centered. If you think that, there's some worldliness that's crept into your thinking. Let's go to second, second one here, which is uh, liberal theology. Liberal theology. Genesis 3, B- Brother Baldwin read, has, Indeed, has God said? Satan has attacked God's word from the very beginning of the Garden of Eden. Has God said? Has God said? This leads to liberal theology where, you, where the, the Bible's been attacked, the inerrancy, that means the, 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 uh, that the fact that the Bible's original autograph had no errors, the inerrancy of the Bible is attacked, therefore attacking the authority of God's word. Has God said? Has God said? Which has led to, in today's culture, egalitarian theology, which basically says there's no difference between men and women in the functions that we serve. Not talking about value, but function, roles, egalitarian theology. We are complementarian. We believe men and women complement one another by God's design, going back to the garden. LGBTQ theology. I mean, I'm hearing about believers posting about Pride Month. What in the world? How can you, in good conscience, post something like that and say, God is pleased with me on this? Who are you trying to please? I'm just saying in general. I mean, our church, Evergreen Church, if we go back to our, before we hived, it goes back to 1925, almost 100 years old. And you can ask any of our, our, of our people that's been connected to Evergreen for a long time. There's been some heretics going through our church family. And with have pulled people away. Doctrines of demons. We understand this. This hurts because this hits close to home for me because we understand what's happening in Rosemead. Doctrines of demons. This is close to home, brothers and sisters. This hurts. But it's happened. How about hyper-charismatic theology? Hyper-charismatic theology. Where hearing from God has been elevated over from hearing from Bible, the God, God's holy word, where subjective hearing 
has been emphasized and objective, concrete, black and white truth in the scriptures has been just put off to the side. Just been almost assumed other than emphasized. That's a problem. Where subjective hearing will discount objective truth that's found in the scriptures. That's a problem. That's a problem. As if there's something higher to be obtained from God. That's a problem. This is an attack on God's word. Things such as, man, we're doing too much Bible. You're emphasizing too much Bible. That's just creating head knowledge in in us. We're We're just becoming Pharisees. We're just learning the Bible too much. For who? The Bible in Psalm 19 says the word of God is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than honey. Romans 12 says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. See that? It's a logical faith that we're part of. It makes sense. We need to reprogram our minds. It's about what we believe. We need to know Jesus through the scriptures. It's not a subjective thing. It's an objective thing. It's concrete. True. This is why you could give up some things in life and many things in life to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. That's why you could let go of your nets and follow Jesus Christ. All those, those nets could reap a lot of worldly benefits. You know, no, no, no. Jesus Christ is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. This is where the more scripture that you know as a Christian, we hunger and crave the Bible because not for head knowledge, not to win Bible jeopardy, because the more we know the scriptures, the more we know Christ, what he's like. We want to know him. If you don't have a hunger for the Bible, even, even this much, you really got to wonder, am I truly a Christian? But if you have a desire, pastor, I'm with you, I desire, but man, it's, it's hard. It's not there. Well, pray for more. God could flam, fan, uh, fan that flame in you. And this is, the, see, what happens is this. When you, the more scripture, the more truth that you have in your mind and your heart, the Spirit of God energizes it within us so we know God more, but it apply, the Spirit applies these truths how we live so we can make decisions and live our lives confidently. That's how this works. Let's go to the fourth and final concern I have. Wolves and sheep's clothes. This is an exciting time at Evergreen. I mean, we have, we have in a transitional time right now, we've had a mixture of people who've been at Evergreen for years and decades. Praise God. But also, it's kind of like the Sea of Galilee. You got waters from the spring, but water's coming in from the snow cap that's melted from Mount Hermon. But we also have new people coming. Praise God. What a super encouraging thing for all of us. If you knew, we're so happy you're here. But there's a mixing that's taking place, right? Mixing in relationships, mixing in conversations, mixing in ace and service and life groups and other things. Praise God. But I want to read out of Acts 20 for us what, what's gonna ha- what happens at every church. Acts 20, 28 says this. Paul write, or Paul says in Acts 20, 28 to the elders in Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders of this church in Ephesus. What is he calling to do? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This church is so precious. We're going to celebrate this once again at, at the Lord's table. Verse 29. 
I know, this is Paul saying, I know, objective truth, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among you, Ephesus, from among us here at Evergreen, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And you're thinking, well, this will never happen to us. Well, I'm telling you, it's happened to our, in our church history. It's in there. We have to learn what's taking place, mainly from the scriptures, but God has shown that these things do happen, even to the best churches. And this is the greatest church I ever would, will ever be a part of. But it could happen. And this is my function as one of the pastors to talk about this. This is what, it's what's happening here. So we must be alert for false teaching. A, you need to make sure I'm teaching and you could check what I'm saying through the scriptures. You got faithful teachers teaching an ace. Praise God. But you need to be guarding amongst yourselves. What are people saying? What, what things are people spreading in our church? Is it coming in line with what the Bible says? That's an issue. You need to guard the church. We all have to guard the church. Are there divisive spirits amongst us? People who know you feel like have an agenda and trying to drive home their point, who are not supportive for what's happening here at Evergreen. You need to be on guard for that. Guard the church. Divisive spirits. Wolves have an agenda in mind. They always do. They always have an agenda. Guard the church. Guard the church. What's amazing about what we're talking about is this. Is that scripture, scripture is what exposes these things. Scripture confronts us. Scripture doesn't allow us to just sit there and thinking, oh, it's a neutral thing. So authoritative preaching and teaching challenges the soul. It confronts the soul. It really should. In love, the Bible says that the goal of our instruction is love, right? To produce love for God and for one another. That's the goal. And a question I have for us is, how do you know if there are any doctrines of demons? I just picked out four things. How do you know? Right now, if you're sitting there right now, how do you know if there's a doctrine of demon that perhaps that we might subscribe to? I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. This talks about the nature of God's word and what it does. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to, ju- listen now, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Whenever the Bible is presented, it's like a dagger, like a sharp scalpel that goes within you and starts judging your heart. And what's in your heart? In other ways, what's in your mind? What do you think about? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Light exposes darkness. It's kind of like this when you're at the, back in college where I was living, we got going to the kitchen in the middle of the night, flip on the light switch, and you see all these roaches, right? Like, yikes. God's word is like that. It's just boom. It shines a flashlight right into your heart. This is the power of God's word. And when the truth is presented, the doctrines of demons are exposed. Truth exposes error in our lives. 
See, authoritative teaching and preaching confronts, and it doesn't just leave you alone, you're okay. Right? Authoritative teaching encourages to say, man, that's great. You, you, you believe the same thing. So how you respond to any preaching or any teaching is this. If you respond with truthful and authoritative preaching with joy and obedience and rejoice, yes, praise God, the word is encouraging you, building you up in this way. It works both ways. It's a double-edged sword. It's not just a one-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword where it helps you and encourages you. It affirms you. Yes, praise God. Praise God. And I know many of us are saying praise God right now, Pastor. But it is a double-edged sword. If you're right now getting angry and getting defensive in your soul because some things have been challenged, perhaps there are some roots of doctrines of demons in the way we think. Could be. Because we will defend our idols and the truth when we hear it taught and preached and when we study the word of God, it exposes error and it exercises the doctrines of demons out of our heart. He does heart surgery in, in it. It's a scalpel that God takes to starts to do good heart surgery within us. Let's conclude here with just the last two verses. Um, There's two responses here, you know, and at a verse 23 and 24, the demons are terrified at the authority of Christ. And it shows that they have orthodox theology. They believe in Jesus Christ. They know who he is. He's the Holy One of God. But they don't submit to him. They'll be judged. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. The Lion of Judah is dealing with them someday. Verse 27, look what happens. This is kind of relates to us now. They were all amazed. The people in the synagogue like, whoa, what just happened? So that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, the demons, and they obey him. They debated amongst themselves. The people were amazed. And the interesting thing and the convicting thing right here is where you fall on that debate will determine your eternity. So church, I know many of us, not only are we amazed, we have repented and believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen? But if you just leave amazed and go like, wow, what a teaching, what, what, what a picture of Christ, and you don't repent and believe, you're just like the demons. Now that's head knowledge. That's just head knowledge. That's what we don't want. You're going to end up with the demons thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. They see that there are no atheists in hell. Everyone's a believer at that point. But the difference is that we want to be believers basking in the glory of the Lion of Judah, the, Lion, the Lamb of God, worshiping Him, Enjoying him forever, enjoying one another forever. So in your amazement, have you repented of your sins and acknowledged that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and, and trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Trust that he died on the cross and paid the price for our sins on the cross. Do you believe this? And say, you know what, I'm going to stop following after these things and stop thinking this way. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. What an opportunity. It's there. It's good news. Demons have no hope. 
There's no time, there's no opportunity to repent for them. But Christ has made a way for us to be right with him by repenting and turning to him as our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to uh, preach on your power and your authority of, your, of the Son. Jesus, you are the King. You have full authority. You alone are Lord. There is no one, nothing that rivals you. Thank you for your holy and precious word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your, your word is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than honey, the sweetest honey. Lord, I pray that you expose the error in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we will repent of these wrong motives and wrong ways of thinking. Cause us to repent, Lord. Move us to repent so we'll be more useful in your hands. So we'll look more like you, Lord Jesus. I pray for those of us in here who do not know you. I pray, Lord, that they will deal, do business with you, Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah. And they will come to know that you are the Lamb of God, the compassionate one, the merciful one, whose loving kindness never ends to those who call on you who say that all those who come to me, I will never cast out. Father, I pray for these right now, that their hearts will be pricked by the Holy Spirit. They'll come to life and they'll acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.